0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled Salty. It's based upon the lectionary readings for February 9th, 2020, the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. When I was seven years old, my mother decided that I was old enough to help her in the kitchen. My first tasks as her assistant included grating coconuts, chopping onions, and peeling what felt like an infinite number of garlic cloves. But there was one culinary lesson Mom stressed over all others. Before she'd let me preside over an actual pot of curry, I had to learn, or rather my mouth had to learn, how to check for salt. Under Mom's tutelage, I learned that it was possible to get every ingredient in a curry just right, to combine perfect amounts of cumin, turmeric, paprika, ginger, garam masala, and cayenne, and still ruin the dish with salt. Too little salt and the curry would remain bland and lifeless, all of its potential zest and kick subdued. Too much salt and the curry would lose its depth and complexity to a sharp, unbearable bitterness. In our Gospel reading this week, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. Living as most of us do in cultures of plenty, we take household goods like salt for granted. But as Mark Kurlansky writes in his book, Salt, A World History, from the beginning of civilization until about 100 years ago, salt was one of the most sought-after commodities in human history. The ancients believed that salt would ward off evil spirits. Religious covenants were sealed with salt. Salt was used for medicinal purposes, to disinfect wounds, check bleeding, stimulate thirst, and treat skin diseases. Roman soldiers were sometimes paid in salt, hence our English word, salary. Brides and grooms rub salt on their bodies to enhance fertility. The Romans salted their vegetables, as we do our modern-day salads. Around 10,000 years ago, dogs were first domesticated using salt. People would leave salt outside their homes to entice the animals. And of course, in all the centuries before refrigeration, salt was essential for food preservation. Nowadays, we still use salt for all sorts of purposes. Salt accentuates flavors, melts ice, softens water, and hastens a boil. It soothes sore throats, rinses sinuses, eases swelling, and cleanses wounds. In some contexts, salt has more than a flavor. It has an edge. It stings, burns, abrades, and irritates. If we don't have enough salt in our bodies, we die. But if we have too much, we also die. I know that it's possible to take a metaphor too seriously. No single descriptor from Scripture, salt, light, bride, clay, sheep, branch, dove, soil, will capture or contain the entirety of what it means to live as followers of Christ. But when Jesus calls his listeners the salt of the earth... He is saying something profound, something we'll miss in our 21st century context unless we press in and pay attention. First of all, he is telling us who we are. We are salt. We are not supposed to be salt, or encouraged to become salt, or promised that if we become salt, God will love us more. The language Jesus uses is 100% descriptive, it's a statement of our identity. We are the salt of the earth. We are that which will enhance or embitter, soothe or irritate, melt or sting, preserve or ruin. For better or for worse, we are the salt of the earth and what we do with our saltiness matters. It matters a lot. Whether we want it to or not, whether we notice or not, whether we're intentional about it or not, we spiritually impact the world we live in. Secondly, we are precious. Again, it's easy to miss the import of this in our modern world, where salt is cheap and plentiful. But imagine what Jesus' first followers would have heard when he called them salt. Remember who they were. Remember what sorts of people Jesus addressed in his famous Sermon on the Mount. The poor, the mournful, the meek, the persecuted, the hungry, the sick, the crippled, the frightened, the outcast, the misfit, the disreputable, the possessed. You he told them all. You are the salt of the earth. You who are not cleaned up and shiny and well-fed and fashionable, you who've been rejected, wounded, unloved, and forgotten, you are essential. You are worthwhile, you are treasured, and I am commissioning you. Thirdly, salt does its best work when it's poured out, when it's scattered, when it dissolves into what's around it. I would have done my mother's curry recipes no favors if I'd kept our salt supply locked in the kitchen cabinet. Salt is not meant to cluster. It's meant to give of itself. It's meant to surrender its unique flavor in order to bring out the best in all that surrounds it. Which means that if we want to enliven, enhance, deepen, and preserve the world we live in, we must not hide within the walls of our churches. We must not cluster and congregate simply for our own comfort. We must not retreat into our pious theological bubbles out of fear, cynicism, shame, or self-righteousness. Salt does not exist to preserve itself. It exists to preserve what is not itself. Another metaphor for this, a metaphor Jesus used all the time, dying. Jesus calls us to die to self, to die in order to live. Remember, we are salt. It's not a question of striving to become what we are not. It's a question of living into the precious fullness of what we already are. Lastly, salt is meant to enhance, not dominate. Christian saltiness heals, it doesn't wound. It purifies, it doesn't desiccate. It softens, it doesn't destroy. Even when Christian saltiness has an edge, even when, for example, it incites thirst, it only draws the thirsty towards the living water of God. It doesn't leave the already thirsty parched, dehydrated and embittered. One of the great tragedies and most consequential sins of historic Christianity has been its failure to understand this distinction. Salt fails when it dominates. Instead of eliciting goodness, it destroys the rich potential all around it. Salt poured out without discretion leaves a burnt, bitter sensation in its wake. It ruins what it tries to enhance. It repels. This, unfortunately, is the reputation Christianity has these days. We are known as the salt that exacerbates wounds, irritates souls, and ruins goodness. We are considered arrogant, domineering, obnoxious, and uninterested in enhancing anything but ourselves. We are known for hoarding our power, not for giving it away. We are known for shaming, not for blessing. We are known for using our words to burn, not heal. This is not what Jesus ever intended when he called us the salt of the earth. Our preciousness was never meant to make us proud and self-righteous. It was meant to humble and awe us. So what do we do? Our vocation in these times and places is not to lose our saltiness. That's the temptation, to retreat, to hide, to choose blandness instead of boldness, to keep our love for Jesus a hushed and embarrassed secret. But that kind of salt, Jesus told his listeners, is useless. It is untrue to its very essence. And so we are called to live wisely, creatively, and in balance. To learn, as my mother put it when I was a little girl, how to check for salt. Salt at its best sustains and enriches life. It pours itself out so that God's kingdom might be known on the earth. A kingdom of spice and zest, a kingdom of health and wholeness, a kingdom of varied depth, flavor, and complexity. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes concrete the work of love, compassion, healing, and justice. It's not enough to simply believe. It's not enough to bask in our blessedness while all around us God's creation burns. To be blessed, to be salt, to be followers of Jesus, is to take seriously what our identity signifies. We are the salt of the earth. This is what we are. For better or for worse may it be for better may your pouring out and mine be for the life of the world for books this week dan reviews walking one step at a time by erling Kagge, translated from the norwegian by becky crook this book was an automatic read for me when i saw it at our local library I had enjoyed reading Kagi's previous book called Silence in an Age of Noise. More practically speaking, my wife and I had become serious long walkers. In 2012, we walked the 500-mile way of St. James in Spain. In 2014, we backpacked the 450-mile pilgrimage across southern France called Le Chemin du Puy. In 2016, we hiked the 350-mile La Via di Francesco from Florence to Assisi to Rome. We've done three 200-mile walks in England and Wales, and last summer, 2019, we hiked the 100-mile Tour de Mont Blanc, so I was interested in Kegi's subject. Kegi brings an unusual personal story to these reflections. Most people know him as a world-class explorer. He was the first person to walk alone to the South Pole, and the first person to complete the so-called Three Poles Challenge, the North Pole, the South Pole, and Mount Everest, During his Antarctic expedition, he had zero radio contact and didn't speak to another person for 50 days. In addition to these personal experiences of walking, Kegi draws upon his urban life in Oslo, his publishing business that he started, his art collecting, scientific studies, and simple things, like dinner conversations with his girls. Along the way, he reflects on philosophers like Socrates, Kierkegaard, Kant, and Heidegger, and various Norwegian thinkers I've never heard of. In our affluent Western culture, we do a whole lot of sitting and driving. But you don't have to be an Antarctic explorer to start walking. Keke also describes his 40-mile walk across Los Angeles. About 20 years ago, my wife and I spent a week in New York City pretty much doing nothing but walking all day, napping in the afternoon and going to a show at night. More accessible still, Keke describes walking two miles from his home in Oslo to his work. We could all do that. So much in our lives is fast-paced, he writes. Walking is a slow undertaking. It is, a, it is among the most radical things you can do. For films this week, Dan reviews Woodstock, Three Days That Defined a Generation. Fifty years ago last summer, and just one month after the Apollo 11 moon landing, on July 20th, 1969, a half million hippies descended upon Max Jasker's farm in upstate New York, from August 15th to 17th, for what the promoters called an Aquarian Exposition, Three Days of Peace and Music. I was 14 years old. Like the moon landing, Woodstock became an iconic event that defined a generation. This commemorative documentary, directed by Barack Goodman and Jamila Efron, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in April 2019 and then on PBS that August. There had been previous music festivals, most notably the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, and events today like Burning Man, but nothing like Woodstock, with its massive traffic gridlock, mud and rain, freak-out tents for the overdosed, nude bathing, and food shortages. The film begins with the cultural backdrop of the Vietnam War, the assassinations of MLK and RFK within a month of each other, the civil rights movement, and the younger generation's countercultural pushback. We're halfway through the movie before we get to day one and the opening act by Richie Havens. The film combines archival footage, still photos, and the voiceovers of regular attendees instead of talking head experts. It was a mark in cosmic time, I have no doubt about that. It stopped the clock for three days, remembers one festival goer. And after it was over, I had to go back to work, said another. I watched this film on Netflix. And lastly, for poetry this week... A New Conversation by Kristen Geiser. I understand a bit more now about how it might have felt to be at the table that night of breaking bread and sipping wine, so grateful for the new conversation, no longer about rules and regulations, but about belonging. The new conversation happened around the table where the life of each disciple was a sacred text, not just the ones who didn't betray a conversation where everyone's words were part of the sacred story. So we return on Sundays to remember what is available to us. Do this in remembrance of me. Do take this with you, this new conversation, this beauty you have experienced. It's not a story to believe or to memorize or to tell, but a life to live with one another, a new conversation to inhabit. What if... As much as it is about the bread and the wine, it is about re-entering the conversation. What if, as much as it is about the beautiful, inherited words offered, it is about our emerging and imperfect words, held by the fertile tensions of belonging and becoming, longing and allowing, arriving and departing. Do this in memory of me. Do take this with you. This gift this earthy and holy invitation to participate in a new conversation. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net for February 9th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.